Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattanooga. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Judith Eckerly, who will discuss the importance of global assessment when looking at attachment issues. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. Yeah, I can understand that with some kids. Um, I'm reminded of a a story I sometimes share with parents that uh, we had a child with fetal alcohol syndrome in um, at the Chicago Child Study Center. Um, They have, um, where Ira Chesnoff has been and and that group, they have a comic book for kids with fetal alcohol syndrome. And we were like going through this comic book with this this, uh, boy. And one of the comics was, child was running into the street and the parent was saying, no, no, don't run into the street. And the little bubble above the kid's head was, my brain knows to stop, but my feet won't stop. Right. And, and this boy was like, Oh, that's how it is. Like, yeah. I, 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 I kind of know what you want, but I can't make my body do it, you right. know? Um, and it was such a relief to him for someone to like articulate that in some manner, you know, as they did in this comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I can understand, you know, what, what you're saying there that, um, it, it can be hard news, but, filling in those pieces to who you are and why you behave the way you do. Um, Just like as we talk about in attachment theory, an autobiographical narrative that's coherent, like I kind of know what's going on with me, you know, could definitely, I see, be so helpful for for many kids. Well, and even as you're talking about that example and that kid, um, I would be turning and looking at my OT to say, um, take a look at his proprioception and his body awareness and his primitive reflexes. And, you know, what about this? Could we also improve for his body to help connect with his brain a little bit? Sometimes can't midline cross. And so our OT will work on that. Sometimes, you know, it really is a mind body disconnect that we actually can do something about. So, you know, that's again, where I can hear that and be like, oh, you know, something's not connecting with the body and the, and the mind. So I'd hand that off to my OT and she would go from there and either recommend <clears throat> home programming or um, maybe formal OT where they would work on that more. So, you know, those are the, exactly the kinds of examples where we would listen to what the kid is saying to us and what the parents are saying and say, you know, I'll still test his vitamin D and I'll still test his thyroid, but this actually may be, um, you know, uh, OT issue where she needs to help the mind and the and the body connect a little bit better with some with some therapies. Yes, um, and I was also thinking when you were talking about the fetal alcohol syndrome and um, that I think a lot of parents don't realize that there can be issues related to this without facial features. Absolutely, yep. So about eighty percent of the kids on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Uh, spectrum will not have the facial features and those are actually the kids that I feel are the most at risk because the ones who are small and have obvious facial features and are intellectually disabled they're obvious and teachers get them and kids get them that they're different and you know but when you have a handsome you know normally growing kid whose brain is also working kind of like an FASD brain um, and they're 10 you know they get a lot of why are you being bad 
and why don't you try harder and you can do this you just have to work at it and those kinds of things that um, maybe they maybe they can you know sometimes they're just being a 10 year old boy but sometimes uh, it really is that the brain doesn't work that way in FASD brains and and they don't get that understanding as much unless we actually do the diagnosis and we do the work to, to show that their brain actually does function in a different way and then the schools can help work with it and the parents as well they can have the expectations that are reasonable so you know understanding what is a can't and what is a won't exactly yeah 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 and um how important that can be and i think the thing that's also so puzzling is um another thing i see a lot is uh since they could do it today that means since they can't do it tomorrow then they're being manipulative or defiant or whatever and right. it, you know it, it seems to be a hallmark of a lot of these uh, disorders uh, that impact development, that's kind of typical. Like, they, oh, yeah. they can sometimes do it and sometimes not. And then I think that confuses everyone. They just say, well, then it's not some other problem. They're just they're just being uncooperative, defiant, or it's a right. control issue because they're a rad child or something like this. <clears throat> yeah, and then so that's, you know, exactly. We try to help the parents understand they're, they're like, I told him to put on his shoes yesterday and he put them on and we went to school. And then today I told him to put on his shoes and like, uh, you know, by the sixth time I'm screaming, put on your shoes. And they're still, you know, like playing with the dog. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, you know, that day was there one pair of shoes out and he put them on. And the next day there were five pairs of shoes out and he didn't know what pair of shoes to put on or, you know, did he get sleep or did, you know, we, we actually treat a lot of sleep issues too, because some, sometimes kids are snoring every night and need their tonsils out or, you know, again, going back to, are there basic medical issues that are interfering with their ability to learn that day or listen that day or, you know, other things? Sometimes there are and sometimes there are not, but some, you know, a lot of times we address all of the medical issues, but then we also have to help the parents understand what's different about a certain day that the child may not have been able to still. Um, and then once the parents understands, you know, the roadblocks and the things, then they can piece out one day when, you know, like I said, the 10 year old boy is just being a 10 year old boy who doesn't want to put his shoes on. Then, you know, then fine. Then he can have consequences and whatever it is. Um, but, you know, if eight out of 10 times, it's really that he doesn't understand what you're asking, then, you know, that's where you need the parent education piece and the child um, to be fully assessed so that, you know, we're not mistaking those. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, vitamin D and thyroid uh, more than once, so I, I can't resist, uh, maybe it's getting a little too technical, but I can't resist asking, you know, how, how often you see that and what is the result of that? Yeah, so we're actually doing a study right now to look at our foster care population, and we've actually looked in our, um, our FASD or alcohol-exposed population as well. Um, just anecdotally, though, um, from my perspective, I've seen an inordinate number of kids who have vitamin D issues. And again, what I tell the parents is, um, low vitamin D, I mean, um, I, what I tell the parents is, if I fix this vitamin D, it's not going to cure everything that's happened to that child, and he's not going to magically be a perfect child tomorrow, but it may be actually a stumbling block to his mood being better, his sleep being better, you know, all of these little things that then can contribute to his not behaving or not understanding one day. So I want to fix what I can fix. Vitamin D has been well described in the adult literature as being linked to multiple long-term neurological issues. Um, it's been linked to dysthymia or uh, depressive symptoms, uh, and that has been well described at this point. So the studies haven't been done in kids, uh, and so we don't know that it necessarily applies to children, but if I have a little boy who's, you know, uh, 
has depressive symptoms and his vitamin D level is seven, which is severe deficiency, you know, I'm going to correct that first because at the minimum that can't be helping him feel better about, you know, day-to-day things. Um, and same thing with thyroid. I, I mean, I had a, a little girl who came to me who was clearly multi-substance exposed, had birth family and birth parents that had psychiatric illnesses. And she was only, I think she was only like five um, and was hearing voices. And the parents were like, you know, we're really concerned because her mom has schizophrenia and, you know, we're just, we feel like we're going down this path and we're scared and it's terrible. And um, and we tested and she had no thyroid hormone available for her little body. So um, we corrected her severe thyroid deficiency and she stopped hearing voices, which is, I mean, that is pretty classic as you can actually, uh, you know, have, severe symptoms if you don't have any thyroid hormones. So, you know, just things like that we need to check, you know, and most of the time their thyroid is fine. I would say most of the time their vitamin D level actually isn't fine, but we correct that. Um, But then sometimes you'll find kids who have severe thyroid problems and that is an easy fix. And then we can get on to the other, you know, trauma or um, learning issues that might be there, but it's all confused if you, you know, have severe deficiencies or have other things that are just not working in your body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you um, have the ability to look at serotonin or any factors like that? We don't. So I know there were, there was a prominent researcher uh, in the last couple decades who was doing a lot of neurotransmitter stuff with kids. And I've looked at the literature and I just don't feel like it's been substantiated enough to do that with kids. You know, I, uh, I feel like as a physician, as an MD, I'm, kind of on the crunchier side of a lot of a lot of MDs because I'm very open to alternative therapies and I feel like in western medicine there are definitely limits and there are things that we just don't know um and so I'm not closed off at all to eastern modalities or things that you know um don't you know can't harm the children you know it's it's worth a try um the issue with that is that I feel like at least back when it started it was very expensive for parents and so that's another thing like if it's you know like vitamin D, we can supplement for literally a $3.99, you know, bottle of vitamin D from the grocery store. So I'm not putting the parents thousands of dollars out to treat something that, you know, may or may not help in the long run. Um, so parents have the financial means to try some of these things. I'm not necessarily opposed to it or the testing, um, but the testing and the supplementation of those kinds of issues has not been well substantiated. Um, and then for more traditional medications like SSRIs or other medications, again, I'm not opposed to it uh, at all. It's just not my first line to go to. And there's so much that we can do usually with um, OT and medical issues and then our, our psychologists um, that if that is not improving and it's not working, then we do tend to try a SSRI or another medication to see if that might help. Well, it's refreshing, though, to hear that that is not the first line of defense because I'm sure you're well aware um, uh, many of these children are on an unbelievable cocktail of medications that are not deemed as safe by the research and and means that maybe because they don't have a clear picture of a diagnosis and what to do, providers are just, okay, we'll add this. Now we'll add this. Now we'll add this. And it's really kind of scary. <laughs> so if you have a situation like that, do you ask the parents to uh, keep them on their medication for your evaluation or how do you handle all that? 
Yeah, we see, so exactly what you're saying. I feel like sometimes people, physicians, or, or people are just at a loss, and so they just keep medicating the symptoms. So, you know, they're acting out, we'll just medicate, they'll calm them down. They're um, not sleeping, we'll make them sleep. Well, you know, so they're just, they're, they're medicating the symptoms, but they're not getting to the root cause of why aren't they sleeping at night? You know, is it the sexual abuse that happened, or is it fear or anxiety? What, what is actually causing them to not sleep? Is it, a, is it a medical issue where they have obstructive sleep apnea, and we need to get their tonsils out? So, you know, we try to get to the root cause. Um, if kids come to me, which is routinely on multiple medications, or, you know, it's still not working well, but they're on multiple medications, we usually say to just keep them on the medications for now, but then we start to get all of the interventions into place. So we get the OT services into place, and we get the school modifications into place into their IEP, and we get their psychology, um, uh, you know, second opinion from our psychologist, and then, you know, to help direct their home psychologist with kind of ongoing therapies. And then we tell the parent, you know, our goal is to wean off all, you know, most or all of these medications over time. It may not be tomorrow, but, you know, while we're getting these services into place to help address the underlying causes, our hope would be that over time, you know, we would be able to get these kids off of almost all, if not all of their medications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's uh, really, really great if, if we can do that. You know, first, if we can just look at other things besides let's do the medication route first, and then right. if we can long term have a goal of if not eliminating, reducing, you know, yeah. un un understanding that some medication can make a huge difference for, difference for some kids. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, some medications they really do feel better on, and there really are kids who actually do have ADHD. Um, I would say um, at least, if not more, 30% of the kids that I see on med ADHD medications probably don't have ADHD. So that's the problem is, you know, Sometimes, uh, again, this is such a widespread problem, and I, I don't blame the general pediatricians because they don't have the background or the, the time to assess these kids in the same way, um, but, you know, typically a questionnaire is used, so a questionnaire from school and a questionnaire from home, and then they'll start the ADHD medicine, and, um, and you know, just from our perspective from these kids who are so complicated and have so many other risk factors, I just feel like a little bit more it probably needs to be done before we would start an ADHD med. Yes, yes. Um, and how about your thoughts on, I'm not going to remember the name of it, some gene testing thing? that Yeah, gene site. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so the kids who really are responding to medications or especially the older kids, you know, we really try with the younger kids to do a lot of other modifications because I feel like especially in the zero to five or zero to ten, even ten-year-old range, we can do so much to actually rewire and form new connections and do things um, that usually we can get them off of most of their medications. And some of the older kids who, you know, have longer sustained trauma and their brains are just a little bit less plastic, um, I will say still very plastic, but less, um, we may need to start medications at least to get to a stabilized place before we can move forward. Um, and some of these kids are coming in on multiple medications or responded initially and then stopped responding or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I've talked to psychiatrists because when it first came out, I was a little skeptical too, but um, most of the psychiatrists that I've spoken to have actually said that it can be very helpful for them to help to manage those medications. And some kids actually need much less, and that's great. Or mm -hmm. some do need to bump up and be on more, at least while we're getting these other services in place. Um, and so most of the psychiatrists are, are in favor of that if, if their medications are not working for them as, as currently. Well, that's good to know um, because I, I was not sure, you know, if, if some, 
some people would say, well, yeah, that's just a, a bunch of whatever. Um, yeah, so that's that's good to know. Um, so um, you, you mentioned the, the sensory issues and, and working with an OT, which, gosh, isn't that so, so important? And, you know, um, and psychiatry and medicine and, um, you know, you, you have a psychologist. So um, do you think those are like pretty much the main disciplines that are really required to do a thorough adequate assessment well maybe your speech and speech people too that look at so we have access to so i mean they're just so it's such a complicated field that we have so many really amazing colleagues that we work with so okay genetics we work closely with because they refer a lot of kids for testing we work really closely with neuropsychology especially on our fasd assessments um because the um, FASD assessments require a neuropsychology part for the diagnosis. So, um, so we work really, really closely with multiple different areas of specialties. I would say, though, that with the OT, the medical piece, and the psychology piece, we're at least able to kind of generally figure out what, you know, if it's medical, I'll then figure out what other referrals to do. If it is OT, um, she does a developmental screen, so she looks at very specifically the OT pieces, but she's also looking at do they have flat feet and or do they walk on their tiptoes and do they have an abnormal gait? Well, then, yes, we need to refer them to PT. So, you know, from her perspective, she helps me to decide, you know, speech is going to want a, this kind of a swallow study. You know, she's not a speech pathologist, but she knows a lot more about the rehab and the developmental world than I do. So she's able to kind of piece out that. So, you know, I think the three of us as a core team are great to help elucidate kind of the main issues. And then each of us then know, you know, what kinds of, you know, I asked my psychologist, he's an older child, what do you think of EMDR? Or, you know, what about these other modalities? Play therapy for this kid. And she'll say, no, you know, for this kid, I really feel like it's uh, a different form of therapy that we should use. So, um, so the, as a core, I think we're really good to help piece out those issues, and then we refer out to many different colleagues that we work very closely with. And would that be something that would be part of people coming for an evaluation, or is that something you can just do for local people? Because I feel like oh, there's a real need for some kind of one-stop shopping for these families that are, you know, so is that something that could be part of an initial, like, several days evaluation you could access this, those people or is that something that would have to be explored later um no so if you give us enough advance warning we can do almost anything the ot psychology screening and medical piece were all in the same clinic all on the same day so anyone who's an appointment with me at this point at all gets mm -hmm. all of those services which is mm -hmm. well um that was our goal with our, our collaboration with our state funding mm -hmm. um if we want a neuropsychology piece for the fasd piece uh, they're booked out quite a ways, so sometimes, you know, three to six months out. So if you give us six months advance notice, we'll do all of our three pieces, plus we'll have a neuropsychology on the same day or the next day. You know, we can coordinate all these pieces, or if it's, um, you know, that they're having feeding and swallowing issues, we'll coordinate that. Um, so, but the three of us are on the same clinic day for every visit 
um, all the time, which is why it's hard for me to add other clinics. I, I can add other clinics if I need to make up clinics or if we have, you know, lots of, of people who want to come, um, but then sometimes our psychology or OT isn't available on that day. Um, and so I almost don't like to add other clinics because I think their input is so valuable to the, to the comprehensive visit that we do. Um, but sometimes I will see patients just on my own as the medical piece at least, and then refer, you know, separately, especially if they're in the area to, um, to see them on a different day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what I'm hearing is you, there's a lot the three of you can do and figure out. And if it's something you can't, you know who to turn to. That's exactly right. And, and that in and of itself is a tremendous gift for many families who are trying to figure this out and, and going so many different places and um, things like that. So that's, that's really fantastic. I mean, I will say there've been a couple patients who have stumped us for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Wow, none of us, (laughs) this is a very interesting case, but we'll talk to more people and we'll try to figure it out. Um, But I would say, you know, again, knock on wood, but the majority of the kids that we see, we have a pretty clear direction of where to head after we've seen them. And I, you know, uh, personally, uh, and as a clinician, I'd much rather have someone say I'm stumped and I don't know what, and we have to keep looking than here, let's just add this. Right, right. Right. Yeah. So even that, I, I see that's a win, you know. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> you know, when you introduced yourself, you said you're a student of, of <laughs> right, of your yes. practice. Yes. I totally feel like that's how I am every day. You know, I teach residents, I'm in an educational environment, but I am I'm always impressed by other physicians who reach out to ask questions because I know I absolutely don't have all the answers and I'm always going to learn and ask more questions and you know change as things come so I I really appreciate that about other practitioners as well as when they know that they don't know everything yes 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 yes. well um this has been such a great um talk I'm I'm so happy that you were able to give your time today for this interview thank you so much thank you for having me I'm really glad I wonder, you know, just in winding up, if we, if you just, you know, put on your adoption medicine hat and is there any, are there like two or three main things, you know, um, that for, for parents who are fostering, adopting, or any of us working with this, that, that you might want to have like, I really, one take home point I really want you to have is this, you know, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, I think we've covered the, the main points. I would just say, you know, if you take one thing away, that, um, that kids are complicated. And so we really need to look at the kids from multiple different angles so that, um, so that we can progress the attachment piece and we can progress the learning piece of things as long as we've cleared the path for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes so many tiny little obstacles in their way that they keep tripping and falling and we don't know why they keep falling down. So if we clear that path for them, then we know kind of what direction they can head in and, you know, help them to at least be as successful as they possibly can be. So just to remember that, you know, all things are not medical, all things are not OT, but, you know, if we look at things as a group and as a a whole child, then I I think that we actually can figure out what the main issues are and help that child the best. That's wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts as well as previous episodes too. If you enjoyed our broadcast, 
please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at Chaddock.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.